Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today and joined by the great Mark Galley on a very important day in the history of this magazine. Yeah, good to be here today. Glad this day has finally come in which we get to honor a very important person in 20th century Christianity. It's true. We are recording Quick to Listen today on the death of Billy Graham who, as many of our listeners know, is actually one of the founders of Christianity Today. And to talk about Billy Graham's life, we are joined by Grant Wacker. Grant is Professor Emeritus of Christian History at Duke Divinity School. He specializes in the history of evangelicalism, Pentecostalism, world missions, and American Protestant thought. Most pertinent to today's discussion, he's also the author of America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. All right. Well, um, this week, let's set up what, how we want to talk about uh, Dr. Graham. He was 99 years old, passing away as we, uh, on the very day we're recording this. Uh, and it is difficult to overstate Graham's influence on contemporary Christianity, not just in the U.S., but globally. Uh, historian Michael Hamilton of Seattle Pacific University, uh, in an article on CT's website, wrote about his the international gatherings he initiated in Berlin, Lausanne, and Amsterdam. He talks about, compares him to the importance of World Council of Churches and Roman Catholic Church in terms of bringing international Christians together. And he concludes by saying, Graham's genius was his ability to inspire people not to follow him, but to strike out on their own, following Jesus by proclaiming the gospel in their own way, and then call them together to inspire and equip thousands more to do the same thing. We may never see his like again, writes Hamilton. Uh, On the other hand, lest we get too global, we have to remember that there's a granular aspect of Graham's uh, influence. I tell this story in in an article on the website as well about my mother. She and my older brother, who was in his late teens, uh, had daily arguments about matters long forgotten, but in tones uh, loud and ugly, which I can still remember. Uh, My brother was hot-headed and stubborn, as was my mother, and she was so desperate at one point. She had heard about many young men turning around after a stint in the military, so she desperately prayed. Lord, if you will put Michael in the military, I'll accept Jesus into my life. And one lesson I learned from that is that you should not bargain with the Almighty. And later that afternoon, he walked in the door and it said he'd signed up for the Air Force. So that, of course, led to her conversion the next time Billy was on TV, which led to my conversion, which is to say you have this global, massive impact, and then you have the way he touched individual lives at their point of need. And so today, as best as we're able... In the few minutes we have, we're going to try to take stock of Graham's legacy. So before we get into our discussion today, I just want to take the time again to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. Mark, as far as I'm concerned, if you subscribe right now to CT, you will be getting 
a entire issue devoted to Billy Graham. Yeah, and it's quite a stunning issue. Um, we started creating this issue back in 2002, as I recall, and we actually have some contributions from people who are no longer with us, which makes it a really unique contribution. People like John Stott, uh, Richard John Newhouse, Chuck Colson, among other people like Grant Wacker, who have contributed to it. So I can almost say without qualification, it will be the, the most impressive journalistic attempt to summarize and understand his life uh, that you'll get in the next few months. I just wanted to call out that Chuck Colson piece that we have. I think that you did the interview, actually, with Chuck Colson. And yes. as many people know, Chuck Colson was part of the Nixon White House, which is part of where I would say the most controversial elements of Graham's legacy take place. And so it's really extraordinary that we get to have Chuck Colson reflecting on that, given that he you know, was working in the White House at that time and then later had his conversion and kind of was in the middle of all of that. So if this is something that is fascinating to you or interesting to you, again, you can get a physical copy of this Billy Graham issue that will be coming out um, in a couple weeks at orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. Yeah, you can get a copy there. All right, Mark, let's give our gut check. Yeah, when I found through it, I found out through a um, text message early in the morning. And I'm, uh, I hope I don't sound cruel and indifferent, but I was, I was relieved that I'd heard he'd passed away because I know that his last few years of his life, he was pretty much, pretty much confined to his room. Uh, if anything, the only trips he took were to and from the hospital. So I'm uh, given, you know, our, our belief in the resurrection of the dead. I do believe he's in a much better situation now. So I'm, yeah, if it sounds cruel, I'm sorry, but, uh, I was relieved that he was able to enjoy this passing and his he's with our Lord now. Which I think is something that he had expressed multiple times was great news for That's him. That's what he wanted, yeah. My gut reaction, I suppose, is that I don't have one so much as I am, as some people know, CT social media manager, among many other things, which means that I read all the content that we put up. And so rather than sometimes forming an opinion about all these things in and of myself, I get a chance to read through all of this content that we have in this Billy Graham issue that we're talking about. And so I actually feel like I'm getting a much more robust issue, not to mention we get to record this podcast today. So, you know, I, I, I've known Billy Graham's legacy in broader strokes, but in many ways, a lot of the things that I'm feeling and thinking about him are coming from people who have known him far more closely than I have, which I actually think is kind of a great way to remember someone on this day. All right, Grant, this is so awesome that we have you. So I thought we'd begin with the micro, uh, Grant, and just when did you first become aware of the person of Billy Graham in your own life, and in what ways was his presence felt in the Christian community in which you grew up? I was 12 years old. Uh, when I first encountered him, uh, my parents took me to New York City. We uh, went to a Billy Graham crusade, and uh, I don't remember anything they said at that time except uh, the laughter. Uh, and he was very funny, and uh, he was always quick-witted, and he was a master at, um, at telling warm-up jokes. And I remember the gales of laughter in Madison Square Garden, uh, and the crowds, uh, the excitement. Uh, it was a... It was a spectacle, uh, in the best sense of the word. It was something really to see, something really to remember. That was 12 years, uh, 60 years ago, uh, and it's it's still uh, fresh in my memory. And and I'm not the only one. I mean, uh, Peter, people wrote in to Graham. They commented repeatedly 
on uh, how they remembered going to a grand crusade when they were children, and that was 40 or 50 years ago. So it's it's stuck in the memory. Yeah, to hear about his uh, sense of humor, that's not normally the way people talk about it. They might talk about his intensity and other things, but uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, uh, I think that is an an important part of his success, actually. And it's under-recognized by historians, journalists, and the uh, several times that I had the great privilege of being with him. This is one of the things that first struck me, is how quick he was. He just had a lightning wit, which didn't always come through well on, on television, but, I mean, certainly in person. And that was part of his, uh, his personality. He was uh, gregarious, totally outward-oriented, and uh, part of the story of, of his success. So, years later, you decide to write a, a more serious biography of Graham, and this comes after uh, other attempts had been made, especially Walter Martin, his magisterial 1991 biography, Prophet with Honor, certainly uh, the most important biography up to that time. So what, what gave you the gall to enter that field? What were you trying to accomplish? <laughs> well, that's, that's a great question. I've asked myself that uh, lots of times uh, because, you know, the, the materials are vast. I mean, you could write about him. You could easily spend an entire life about uh, doing nothing but writing about Graham because the materials are so vast. And one of the reasons they're vast is because his life speaks to much more than himself. He brought a movement into existence. And, of course, all the parts of the movement were always there, but or not always there, but had been there for many years, many decades. But part of Graham's achievement is that he brought disparate threads together into a single uh, tapestry that we call something like a mainstream evangelicalism. And he did it internationally. Um, You spoke of Mike Hamilton's work, and Mike and others have written about uh, Graham's uh, international conferences in Berlin and Lausanne, Amsterdam, and elsewhere. One of the great products of these conferences is that it gave evangelicals internationally a sense of fellowship that they were part of one movement. So what he, he, he did this at home in the 50s, and then he did it internationally in the 60s, and then especially in, in the 70s. So it's a, it, it's, it's a great rolling topic. The reason I uh, uh, got into the topic was partly because of one of the uh, CT associate editors or writers, uh, uh, Mark Knoll, uh, said to me, well, what we really need is a book that relates Graham to uh, American culture. Uh, not so much biography of the man himself, but how he fitted into larger trends of the time and how he helped create those trends. And so that's what I tried to do. I tried to look at Graham as uh, both a product and a producer of uh, the American culture that he lived in. You talked about some of these threads that Graham helped bring together. What were those threads? He primarily tried to create a movement that was as inclusive as possible uh, without losing sight of fundamental principles. He did not want to fight. And he received an enormous amount of criticism um, over the course of his life. In fact, the organization has a whole fat folder of death threats uh, that were directed toward him and his family. Uh, and so this, this is how, how deep it could be. Now, of course, that's not the majority of it, but there was a great deal of criticism uh, of him from uh, from the mentalist side, later on from uh, mainline and some from secular pundits. He didn't respond to any of this. He just forged ahead. And he said repeatedly, my job, and he said in different ways, my job is not to contest, uh, not to do battle, but rather to proclaim a positive message. So that message that he proclaimed was to uh, create a movement that was uh, 
responsive to biblical authority and that sought to bring people to faith in Christ, but at the same time not get bogged down in uh, needless uh, doctrinal controversies or cultural controversies. I think the uh, thing that interests me about your uh, your biography is the fact that in many ways uh, Graham is a product of his time. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. What were the trends and, and movements of his own era that he just was able to fit into well and, in a sense, exploit? Uh, it's not quite the quite right word I'm looking for, but you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, appropriate. Well, uh, he uh, dealt with the question of race, uh, both as a man of his time and as a man ahead of his time. And this has been a very uh, controversial question, Graham and race. People uh, bring it up all the time. And there's much more to Graham than that issue, but it's a good example. Through the 1940s, he was a Southern segregationist. He was uh, apologetic about it looking back, but I grew up in the South, and this is all I knew, and this is what I knew, and uh, he didn't really think to challenge uh, segregation through the 40s. Um, By the early 50s, his conscience began to gnaw, and uh, by 52 or 53, depending on exactly what evidence we look at, but somewhere in there, he made a a decision he was going to take a stand. So uh, in his crusades, he vowed that they would no longer be segregated, and uh, they were not from then on. Now, this seems like a small thing to us today, but in the context of 1952 and 1953, this was an extraordinarily bold move to uh, insist there would be no longer any form of segregation in his meeting. Now, he was a product of the times. We don't want to romanticize. And in the 60s, he began to back off. He thought that uh, there was disorder in the streets. uh, And he, like many others, uh, including Attorney General Robert Kennedy, began to uh, be very wary of uh, both uh, Vietnam protesters and he thought uh, civil rights uh, protesters were uh, taking things too fast. In fact, in uh, 63, he said to Martin Luther King, uh, it's time to put the brakes on a little bit. So he began to pull back in that era. He wasn't alone, uh, but he did. But by the 70s, uh, he had uh, regained his vision, uh, certainly. And in about 1982, he would be preaching in the Patriarchal Cathedral in Moscow. And uh, he said, in my life, I've gone through three conversions. Uh, one is to Christ. The second is to the necessity of racial justice. And the third is to the necessity of nuclear disarmament. So he was a man who grew. He was attentive to the times. He was influenced to the times. But uh, he grew constantly uh, throughout the course of his very long ministry. So amidst these trends and social movements, I mean, what, what does he bring creatively to the to to his ministry to the church that is in fact uh, a unique contribution and not just following of trends first look looking at the political sphere i believe the place where he made his most uh, uh distinctive contribution and one that will be applauded by historians for generations is his uh, conviction about the danger of uh, nuclear war and militarization uh, this came upon him in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 90s. He saw this as a, an important part of his calling. That we were on the brink of destroying our uh, our civilization. And this is bold. I mean, this is courageous. He is well ahead of uh, most evangelicals at, at this point. So in this in this case, he is uh, he's setting his sights, you know, far to the future in a courageous way. And actually, um, in a, a State Department wasn't with him when he went to Soviet Union. Uh, Ronald Reagan initially resisted. George Bush did. And they were all friends. But 
uh, he stood tall on that. So that's that's one major contribution. Second contribution is, is that I think he, he was willing uh, to adjust uh, his theology and what he proclaimed from the, the pulpit in response to his own growth, uh, his own moral growth. And he, he consistently tried to make the gospel as inclusive as possible. I think he would, if, he, if he were with us right now and could speak, uh, I think he'd be mortified uh, by the cultural wars and how traditions of all sorts, not just evangelicals, but people on the left, right, upside down, backwards, I mean, all kinds of traditions have gotten so entangled in politics. And uh, in the last third of his life, uh, he, he insisted uh, that the gospel should transcend partisan politics. It really does not have a place in the pulpit. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com ct. This is Quick to Listen host Morgan Lee, joined by Trevin Wax, Bible and reference publisher for Lifeway Christian Resources and Holman Bibles. Hey, Trevin. Glad to be with you guys. Trevin, one point of pride for the CSB is its optimal equivalence translation philosophy. Tell me more about this. There are two major translation philosophies that you find. One is we call formal equivalence. That means the translators are, are going for a, a literal word-for-word rendering. And, and then you have dynamic equivalence, focusing on translating the thoughts expressed by the original. It's going to focus more on being readable, uh, capturing the meaning. The translation team that worked on the CSB does not believe that you need to choose between those two translation philosophies. The, the idea is that we can be rigorously faithful to the original text and also readable for a modern audience. All translations are on a spectrum. CSB is going for that sweet spot of trying to be in between those two. This episode of Quick to Listen was brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com ct to find the right Christian Standard Bible edition for you. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Grant, I'm glad that you brought up some of this politics stuff because that's how many of us will remember Billy Graham as someone, you know, who met with many of the presidents. So help us kind of untangle his philosophy when it came to meeting with presidents or deciding whether to endorse a particular platform or party or person. You you talked earlier about how he grew as a person. Is this another area of his life where he kind of evolved in his philosophy and thinking as well? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. 
Well, his, his first foray in politics was not a happy one. Uh, he had a meeting with uh, Harry Truman uh, in 1950. As soon as he got out of Truman's office, the press wanted to know what he and Truman had said to each other, and uh, he blabbed. That's all you can say. He just blabbed. He said everything that was exchanged, and Truman was furious, and uh, Truman never forgave him. He had an icy relationship from uh, there on. And so uh, Graham learned that uh, you simply don't talk about what any president might say. And this is part of the problem, but later on, when uh, he was challenged by people in the main line for not challenging Richard Nixon and Lyndon Johnson in private, he, he, he would say, you don't know what I say in private. I'm not going to tell you because the confidentiality is just presupposed. So he learned that lesson, the lesson of absolute confidentiality. As we move into the uh, Eisenhower administration, and then uh, through Johnson's administration, uh, he became more and more involved in partisan politics. He said he wasn't, but he was. And I think, you know, he thought he wasn't, but nobody was watching or listening, you know, <laughs> really took that all in seriously. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And uh, historian Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy, I think, got just right. They said, you know, he, he was a moderate Republican. That's what he really was. Uh, or um, the journalist in, 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 in New York, uh, Murray Kenton, said, uh, Graham claims to be nonpartisan, but everybody knows that he prays Republican. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, he, he, he was and that that's what he, what he did. Now, there are a couple of major exceptions to that, though, in that he was extremely close to Lyndon Johnson. I think Johnson was the best friend he ever had outside of uh, his immediate circle. And he said, you can't be much of a uh, Republican for long when you're around Lyndon Johnson. So, so, there, so there are exceptions. That's not just a contrast in, like, politics, though. That's a contrast in personality and values, perhaps. Extremely, yeah. Uh, but they were, they were both titanic personalities. I mean, this is what they had in common. They knew how to get things done, and they knew how to persuade people. And uh, Graham knew that Johnson was a course figure. Um, I mean, he knew that uh, what Graham, what Johnson's private life was like. But Johnson didn't pretend to be pious uh, the way Nixon did. And so Graham wasn't fooled. He just took Johnson the way he was. And that's another characteristic of Graham. He was, he was utterly non-judgmental. He did not judge people uh, on the basis of their of their personalities or even their private lives, you know, as long as he thought that uh, they, were, they were honest with him. So he was very close to Lyndon Johnson. And, and so when we say that he was a moderate Republican, it has to be uh, qualified in that sense. But on the whole, that is, his policies were aligned more with Eisenhower and uh, with uh, with Nixon. With Nixon, he became clearly partisan and even admitted that he, he voted for Nixon. And then he was burned. And um, when he was burned uh, by Nixon, he learned a lesson. And I think you can say that Nixon saved Graham. And by that, I mean Graham learned a lesson. And he learned that you uh, associate yourself with politicians in public forthrightly at your own peril. And more than that, at the peril of the gospel. So from then on, he tried to stay out of it. Now, he fell off the wagon. Uh, there were times he just could not stay out of it. But he certainly tried to keep the gospel free of a partisan entire. So a person who's as, as interesting, as complex as Graham, there must be paradoxes or ironies that struck you as you were researching. What would be one or two that you think are particularly interesting? 
he was not reflective. Uh, he was not self-reflective. He was not introspective. Uh, in fact, I think you could say there was really not an introspective bone in his body. He was entirely oriented outward. So I don't know if we call it a paradox, but at least one might think that a, the man in his you know, his line of work would would have deep spiritual reflections or maybe even dark nights of the soul and such things. And he didn't. That, that's just not the uh, way, way his personality uh, was wired. He once said, uh, he said to Larry King, I have mostly sunny days. And, uh, and I think that was uh, absolutely true. Another kind of paradox is that um, he was never afraid to uh, go into a hostile or difficult situation because he was afraid of the other people. Uh, one of the lesser-known stories about Graham is how often he, he spoke in prestige universities. It would be hard to find any major university in America, or for that matter, much of Europe, where he did not speak and engage the faculty, including the theological faculty. And, uh, you know, a lot of settings where I would, you know, I would say, gee, it's, it's way above me. I don't want to get into that, you know. Those people are way smarter than I am. And he had in no fear whatsoever. And it wasn't because he thought, you know, that he knew it all. It's precisely because he said, I'm not an academic. I'm not an intellectual. I'm not a scholar. But what I am is someone who can proclaim the gospel. I can talk about enduring human needs. And I think this is just remarkable, his bravery. Step into the ring, no matter where. And even uh, he spoke to, say, the Students for Democratic Society in Columbia, which I think this was in the 60s. I mean, this was a hostile group. But he spoke to them, and as far as I know, uh, it was an entirely amicable meeting. And and, and the same was, uh, that same pattern persisted uh, throughout his life, his willingness to enter into the ring, not belligerently by any means, but just enter in and say, here I am, here's my message, and, you know, Let's talk about it. Yeah, I, I still have an image. You called it to mind where he appeared on Laugh-In, which was this comedy show, very cynical. Uh, and he was a guest on Laugh-In. And uh, I think yeah. he took a few hits, but he, I think probably one of the conditions was he, he wanted an opportunity to share the gospel. And he did on Laugh-In. It was pretty amazing. Absolutely. Well, one of the classic interviews with Graham is with uh, Graham and Woody Allen. Uh, and it's on YouTube. It's been viewed, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of times, I suppose. But where they go back and forth, you know, they're giving each other a really hard time, and it's, it's very amicable. There's a lot of laughter, and uh, so finally Alan says, okay, so uh, you believe in the Bible, and Graham says, yeah. And then Alan says, uh, so you believe in the Ten Commandments, and Graham says, yeah. And he says, and Alan says, now tell me, what's your favorite commandment? And without missing a beat, Graham said, well, uh, since I have five teenagers at home, I would say my favorite commandment is the fifth. Honor your father and your mother. <laughs> exactly. Well, of course, you know, the crowd just, the studio audience just, just roars uh, at that point. But this is typical of how, how Graham could handle uh, difficult situations, but he did it winsomely. And so at the end, uh, Alan agreed to come to a Graham meeting, and then Alan agreed to come to another one of Alan's sh shows. And I mean, so, I mean, he, he, was, he was just, just remarkably winsome in the way he presented gospel. Yeah, I'm just very struck by the fact that he read good intentions into people who really didn't necessarily agree with him at all and how much of a contrast that is today where people just assume bad intentions up front. Yeah, lots of examples of people whose, uh, say, their ideology or even their personal lives were very, very far from what he would endorse. But uh, he was non-judgmental. He just said, I don't I accept people the way they are. I hope they can accept me, and I'll accept you. And uh, we have we have far more in common as people uh, 
then we have a part holding its part. This is a, a great example of this too is his relationship with Catholics. I mean, right from the outset in 1950, in his first crusade in Boston, uh, he won the endorsement of Richard Cushing, who at that time was Archbishop, later became a Cardinal. Uh, here, and so in 1950, when you know Protestants and Catholics in general, and Evangelicals and Catholics are really uh, at each other's throats, and Graham is working with Catholics and soliciting their approval. And this goes on even into uh, 1981. He had an audience of John Paul II. He had three of them all together, but the first one was in 81. And um, after an hour conversation, the Pope, well, the reports vary, either gave him a hug or clasped his hand, but one way or another said, said to Graham, we are brothers. And this is pretty remarkable. Premier evangelical leader in the world, I'd say, and of course the pontiff, saying, we are brothers. And then Graham went on a very King show and he told the world what had happened. So, I mean, that's as important, too, that he wasn't, a, he was proud of this relationship with Catholics. Yeah, Grant, I'm actually really curious about that. What led Billy Graham to decide to expend his social capital in building relationships that may have made him unpopular with his quote unquote base? I don't think that he ever saw that he had a constituency uh, that he was answerable to. Uh, let's take the example of his affiliation in Southern Baptist Convention. He was, for most of his life, he was he was a Southern Baptist. There was a short period in the early days when he actually affiliated the Christian Missionary Alliance, but um, for most of his life, he was Southern Baptist. But he never emphasized Baptist distinctives, and I don't think that was because he was dissimulating. He he just felt well, you know, I, I'm be a Baptist when I'm in a Baptist context, but that's not what I'm primarily called to do. Uh, what he was primarily called to do was to proclaim this message, this positive message. And, and on what the message boils down to is I have, I have a message about the transformation of your life, and that transformation should change everything else about your life. So when critics said, well, all you're talking about is changing individuals, he would say, well, yeah, I mean, this is where it starts, but that certainly is not where it ends. We change individuals so that we can change everything else about a person's life and their relationship with God, people around, their self-understanding. It's the beginning of a of, of a general transformation. So to go back to the question: Is that uh, I don't I don't think he ever saw himself as particularly beholding to any constituency. Uh, rather, uh, his, his obligation that he was beholding to was his call as evangelist to proclaim good news. Yeah, that point about him uh, not preaching just an individualistic gospel is is borne out in his own life in terms of his stance on racial justice, his stand on uh, nuclear arms. He obviously saw himself as an individual Christian who needed to speak into these broad and very complex social issues. So it's a little bit of an unfair critique to say he was just interested in individual Christianity. But this is uh, one of the common criticisms, and I think it's just wrong. If you listen to what he's really saying, he's saying uh, a better world requires better people. And so we start where the problem lies uh, with individual selfishness, uh, broadly understood uh, selfishness as, as sin, uh, as greed, and all the things that we think selfishness brings about. And we start there, but then we look for the manifestations of a change. And that change has to have manifestations throughout one's life, or it doesn't really count. Now, now, Graham wasn't fully consistent. We don't want to romanticize him. I don't think he, he ever really thought about, uh, say, a question like this. 
the most Christianized parts of the nation, Christianized in the traditional sense of evangelical, say where you have the largest number of evangelical churches, most people who profess faith in Christ would, would be in the South. Well, the South is also the most segregated part. And I don't think you put that those together very well. I mean, there's, there's some tough issues that uh, he didn't so much avoid as he just didn't ask. But we all have limitations, and I, I think if you were here today, uh, you'd say, yeah, yeah, this is a problem. We have to deal with it. I'm sure that we could spend a lot of time on this next question, but I'm wondering if you could just give our audience the the 90-second or two-minute version of Graham's relationship with starting Christianity Today. In the early 50s, uh, he and his father-in-law, Nelson Bell, and Carl Henry, and Harold Ockengay, and some others were distressed by the fact that this evangelical movement that was coming into being had no institutional voice. And uh, he also was, I mean, he was just upfront about this, he was also annoyed by the fact that the Christian century seemed to have, seemed to be the only show in town. And he thought that uh, there should be another voice that was comparable to the Christian century uh, that could speak for independent evangelicals and for evangelicals in the mainline. There are a lot of mainline, a lot of people of evangelical faith in mainline pew, and they needed the voice. And then also he he said uh, words are evanescent. What is printed is not. So that was another reason uh, they felt they needed a voice who was to put this down, to make it firm, because um, things change. So the desire to give evangelicals a voice that would uh, persist and that it would be respectable, uh, this was another part of it. They wanted a, they wanted a seat at the table, public discussion. And, uh, you know, the sheer fact that evangelicals uh, appeared so rarely on, uh, uh, say, uh, national media, we want a seat at the table. And uh, the way we do this is with a periodical in which we can put our best foot forward. And they, the early issues of Christianity Today were actually uh, were very, very scholarly. I mean, they were consistently scholarly articles. I can't imagine how tough it would be you know, nowadays to you know, build up any kind of a subscriber base. But uh, that was the early days. Now, fortunately, I'll say very fortunately, Christianity Today has developed a, a, a greater sensitivity to the range of audiences. Well done, Mark. <laughs> no, I'm absolutely. I think Graham would be very pleased by how Christianity Today has amplified its range of audiences and its, its uh, range of interests. Well, I hate to ask this question because there is no simple answer, and you're a scholar and you don't like simple answers, but of all the things and influences he had, what do you imagine might be his most lasting legacy? Or one or two, if you would want to pick one. Mm-hmm. Well, one is his personal humility. I mean, everybody who came in encounter with him, including me, were overwhelmed by this. It's just genuine. And, you know, people who don't know him or didn't like him, you know, they'd say, well, it was an act. And, and for those of us who had time with him, the answer is, no, it clearly was not an act. It was a real deal. And what that personal humility consisted of was not a denigration of his accomplishments. He knew he had accomplished great things, but he always said, it's not me. It's the Lord working through me. And uh, this was a conviction that he held deeply, that he knew he could do things. He knew he was a good speaker. You know, he knew he had all these abilities, but he instantly then said, but it's nothing that I, I, I've done on my own. It's purely the Lord enabling me to do this work for him. So I, th- I think that's one of the great legacies is this, this personal image of a man of genuine humility, a man also of 
impeccable personal integrity. Of all the things people have been criticizing for, no one has really seriously suggested that he violated his marital vows or financial integrity. He, was, he, he walked the talk. And then I'd say third, the inclusiveness of his message, his desire to reach as many people as possible and alienate as few people as possible along the way. Grant, that was such a really informative set of commentary that we had here. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. So anyone who has feedback or discussion that they would like to have on this podcast, you can give it to us on Twitter. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share with us something that is bringing them joy this week. Grant, unfortunately, cannot join us during this segment. He is off to do other interviews on what I'm sure is a really crazy day for him and media appearances. So we're glad that he could make the first part of the show. So that leaves you, Mark, to go first. Hope you're ready. Well, uh, what's bringing me joy is I'm recovering my health. As you know, I have been down with the flu that turned into pneumonia and really put me on my back. So once I got the diagnosis of pneumonia, the doctor gave me some pretty cool drugs, antibiotics and codeine. And the thing I'm most thankful for and joyful for is my health coming back. You don't, you know, it's like, it's an old cliche. You, you're never quite thankful for your health like you ought to be. And you only notice it when you don't have it. So it is a moment of joy to, to start to come back. I tried to work out in the gym yesterday and to, to tell you that the recovery is, I usually work out 45 minutes more or less. I was way able to work out 12 minutes before I was gasping for air because I still don't Yeah, I'm have not a, sure that was the greatest idea. Well, I, my doctor gave me permission and I took it easy, but okay. even then my lungs just don't have the capacity to, uh, to go more than 10 to 15 minutes right now. So it'll be a process, but at least I'm feeling better and I'm alert. I'm in the office and maybe that's a blessing for the rest of the staff or not. I don't know. I totally know what you mean though about not knowing how good it is to be well until you're sick. It's actually really annoying. <laughs> it's not like you go around being like, oh, my elbow doesn't hurt. But if your elbow hurts, then you're just like whining about that all day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Where can people find you? I am can be found on the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I uh, Report, which can be found at Christianity Today, uh, the Galley Report, where you can read or and or subscribe. It's a newsletter I publish with links and commentary every week. My precious moment last week was the start of Lunar New Year. And I found out that if you type in the Mandarin characters and send a text with them, then your fireworks explode in the background of your text message. It was really cool. That's not my only precious moment related to Lunar New Year. Um, my dad sent me digital Lisi, which is not necessarily a thing. But in Chinese tradition, you get red envelopes and they usually put money in there. But he just sent me money via Chase QuickPay. But that was still nice of him. What a good dad. Agreed. And um, my friends had something called Dumpling Fest, which apparently they have every year. But it is what it sounds like, where they probably make like 300 dumplings and serve them to people all night, which is an awesome idea for a party. That does sound great. Right? Like, who exactly. can complain? Who could not like dumplings? Oh, my gosh. I know. I'm kind of like... A lot of carbohydrates. Man, awesome. Craving them right now. And people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. 
That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. We appreciate everyone who has reviewed the podcast. Otherwise, if you like the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and tell us that you like the podcast by rating and reviewing the show. That is the best way to support the show outside of subscribing to Christianity Today magazine, which again, you can get at orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark and Cray Allred. Have an awesome day and we'll see you next week.